Please let yourself sit in a way that's comfortable and at ease. And listen not so much to remember what I say, no quiz, no exam, but to sense if any of it resonates with what you already know to be true. There's this kind of strange paradox. Here we sit with really very little asked of you just to sit quietly and feel your body breathe and notice what happens. And here's this vast, marvelous desert. Um, You walk out and it's so huge and alive in its own kind of mysterious way. And then we find that it's hard to do that. That it's actually hard to sit still. Restlessness comes, sleepiness, boredom, and then reruns. Get stuck on some channel late at night and you can't turn the, you know, remote won't go off and it keeps playing the same, you know, shopping channel over and over or, or you know, soap opera channel or you know the channel that you're on, right? It's so, it is so mysterious um, to be alive. And then we get caught in the, all the inner thoughts and drama and in some way forget what it is just to be incarnate in this world, to have this human body. I don't know how you got in there, but it, it's kind of amazing. You have little bits of fur in certain places. Mine is diminishing, but there it was, you know. You have... Uh, hole at one end into which you stuff dead plants and animals regularly and grind them up with the bones that hang down, right? Glug them through the tube. You ambulate by falling one direction and catching yourself, and you fall the other direction and catch yourself. It's bizarre. You know, it is. So here's one response from the Associated Press. In one of history's more unlikely acts of totalitarianism, the Chinese government in 2009 banned Buddhist monks in Tibet from reincarnating without government permission. (laughs) According to the statement issued by the State Administration for Religious Affairs, the law which went into effect in 2010 strictly stipulates the procedures by which one is to reincarnate and is, quote, an important move to institutionalize management of reincarnation. That's one way to approach our life. But there's another that we know very well. And I've worked over different periods with the Insight Prison Project in San Quentin Prison and elsewhere. And there's a man who's been in San Quentin for quite a long time, Jarvis Masters, um, writes about his experience, very lovely fellow. Um, who took Buddhist bodhisattva vows with the Lama Thrangu Rinpoche and has done years of practice. And anyway, one day in the winter, a few years ago, he was out in the yard, which looks out over the San Francisco Bay, this most amazing place, except that there's razor wire and guards with automatic rifles looking down, so you see the bay, and, but it's not so pleasant as it might be. Um, 
and it had rained and there were puddles out in the yard and a big seagull came and landed in a puddle. And next to Jarvis was this young guy who picked up a stone to throw it at the seagull. And if you don't understand that, you haven't been hanging out with young men recently. But they like to shoot and throw and things. It's just part of the deal. Um, it is. And um, because he'd taken bodhisattva vows, Jarvis, without thinking, just put his hand out, like, don't kill that bird, you know. And the guy got really angry. What are you doing, man? Who do you think you are? Start shouting, and everything in the yard gets quiet. Something's going to come down, because you don't mess with another person's space at all. You know, everyone's listening. And Jarvis turns to him and says, that bird got my wings. And the man looks at him, what? You know, if you're really in trouble, say something completely insane, right? <laughs> but he puts his rock down, and Jarvis gets up and walks away. And for the next couple of weeks, people would come up to Jarvis and say, Jarvis, what did you mean that, word got, that bird got my wings? What did you mean? And he never answered. But you know what it means, you know, that they can... Put your body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit. And meditation in that way is unlike almost anything else that you do in your life, except maybe making music or dancing. Because the idea in music isn't to get to the end of the piece of music. Alan Watts talks about this. If the idea were, were that, then the best musicians would simply be the fastest ones, right? Wow, I finished Bach, now Beethoven, now I'll do something else. Got through all of that. But the point in making music is to be in harmony with the moment, with right now. The same in dancing. You know, you don't get your partner and say, okay, let's dance into Joshua Tree and pick up some chocolate or whatever, you know, your desire is and sort of make an errand out of it. You dance in harmony with the rhythm of the moment. And in that way, although we're using the breath as awareness of breath as a way to begin for the first couple of days, and then we'll open up the mindfulness to include body sensations and feelings, emotions, thoughts, and so forth. In that way, the point of the meditation isn't about the breath to become a good breather. And it's especially important for those of you who've practiced for a long time, as well as those who are new. Nor is it about sitting or walking, per se. These are the outer forms that we use to open the space of awareness and presence or compassion that is free no matter what. As Jarvis says, that bird got my wings. You have this freedom that is always here and now. And we get caught in all kinds of ways. But in a moment, we can come back and rest with a certain graciousness here in this mysterious human incarnation with its pains and pleasures and gain and loss and joy and sorrow. Anybody not have that? Just checking, right? And we've all tasted this freedom. It's not foreign to us, moments listening to music or walking in the mountains or making love or out in the desert or 
on the rim of the Grand Canyon or just lying out and looking at the night sky. One of my favorite things is to lie out in the grass when it's a clear night and the stars are really clear. And instead of looking up at the sky, pretend that I'm looking down into space. Because you are really, you know, and the earth is kind of holding you like a magnet on it and you're looking down into endless space and it's kind of, feels wild, you know. (laughs) But it is, it is. Alice Walker, who writes, where are you, Alice? (laughs) Well, she wrote, she said, one day when I was sitting there like a motherless child, which I was, it came to me, that feeling of being a part of everything. And I knew if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laugh and I cried and I run all around the house. In fact, when it happened, you just can't miss it. And we know this. We know the sense of graciousness, even the moments of perfection of the world with its tragedy and its unbearable beauty woven together. The moments of silence and love. And to meditate is an invitation to come to this awakening, this Buddha nature that sees the world with the eyes and the heart of a Buddha that you are. Now there's a kind of a paradox in this. Zen Master Suzuki Roshi puts it this way, speaking of perfection, of being present for things just the way they are. He said, you're perfect just the way you are which have your Zen master look at you and you know all the struggles you do in your meditation say you're perfect just the way you are and there's like a oh, great relief. And then he added, of course there is room for improvement. You know? <laughs> and this is the paradox of being human, that who we are, O oh, nobly born, begin the Buddhist text, O oh, you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones, remember your dignity, your nobility, your freedom. And yet, there's room for improvement. And the improvement isn't like a self-improvement game, going to the gym or to therapy or you know, all the other things that you do, which are fine and they're very helpful and jogging and whatever. Um, but it is rather a remembering, a returning, a sustaining, an embodying in which we come back, we lose this sense of freedom, even though it's there in us. And so we find a way to come back to it, which is why we come on retreat, really. And the ability to sustain and embody depends on what the Buddha called a couple of different qualities. Yoniso manasikara is one Pali or Sanskrit word, and the other is apamada. And apamada, the most simple and elegant translation of apamada means care. To take care, to be present for this mystery of the body breathing and the feelings and thoughts coming of the desert and all that connects us in the world. And to practice then is to bring this quality of care so that that fundamental wisdom, openness that is your true nature can blossom, can shine. Now, one of the images that the Buddha used 
for this practice is the image of tending a garden or planting a field. And in one of the texts from the Samyutta Nikaya, one morning it says the Blessed One took his bowl out for alms food and approached the area of a great plowing field owned by a rich Brahmin who was distributing food to his workers. And when the Brahmin saw the Buddha coming for alms, he said, O beggar, O monk and beggar, I plow and sow, and having worked in this way, I eat. You should plow and sow, and then you too might eat. It's sort of putting him down a little bit. You're a beggar. Get a life, basically, he's saying to the Buddha. <laughs> and the Buddha replied, I also, Brahman, plow and sow, and having plowed and sown the field, I eat. And the Brahman, rich Brahman, says, You claim to be a plowman, yet I see no plow. Tell me. What kind of plowing is it that you do? And the Buddha replied, trust is the seed or faith, composure the rain, clarity is my plow and yoke, compassion is the guide pole, and mind is the harness, wakefulness is the plow blade, well guarded in action and speech, I use truth to weed and cultivate release. Wise effort is my oxen, drawing the plow of awareness steadily toward freedom, freedom without regret. This is how I plow, and it brings the fruit of liberation of the deathless. And the Brahman replied, I see now, I will offer you food. And he put some food into the Buddha's bowl, or he tried to, but as soon as he did, it steamed and hissed, and he couldn't do it. All the steam came out, um, and the Buddha just took his bowl and walked on. And in case, there's probably a couple of you here that have done some farming in the past, so you'll have an idea of why his bowl was hot. Because if you take a plow and cut a long furrow in a field, a steel plow, by the end of that one furrow, it's really, really hot from cutting through the earth. And so this was... And you know, this is archetypal, this is the poetic language. His bowl was hot from all of his dharma practice. And the, the, the rice gruel steamed right out of it. This is my plow. And so we use practice, the seeds of faith and the mindfulness. We encounter the obstacles of weeds and insects and so forth. And we use this practice to reawaken to or to see what's so and to bring this presence or beauty or openness that is our true nature to blossom. Now, when you garden or you plow, you meet obstacles. The insects, the drought, the weeds, and so forth. And in spiritual life, it's the same way. Actually, it's true in almost anything that you do that has a dedication to it, if you dedicate yourself to something. You plant your seeds, a certain kind of potential, right? And set your direction of what's of value. But in business, you start a business and then sometimes there's not enough capital or a key employee quits or the market changes or the supplier gets bought up or the competition gets stiffer. 
you know, or the interest rates rise, one of those kinds of things. And you have to keep tending the seed of that idea and that vision and that work no matter what. Michael Jordan, basketball player. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost over 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I failed over and over again, but I still keep going out on the court. This is why I succeed. Business, parenting, it's the same. You know, you have this little kid and they want to put everything in their mouth, right? Or they want to run into the street or hit another kid with blocks or, you know, ride their bicycle in ways they shouldn't or get hurt or then they become, you know, they go through puberty, right? And teens and then they want to drive, right? And become sexual beings as well and oh my God, you know? And you have to do all this tending to it, to the process of their growing book out of love. And then something beautiful comes from it in good moments. You know? <laughs> or social change. It's the same thing. You know, you dedicate yourself to justice, to, to the healing of racism or the ending of war or some social condition that where people are, are hurt or hungry to right injustice. And as you do, you keep encountering different obstacles. Thomas Merton, Christian mystic, writes, do not depend on the hope of results. You may have to face the fact that your work will be apparently worthless and achieve no result at all, if not perhaps bring about its opposite. As you understand this idea, you start more and more to concentrate not on the results, but on the value, the rightness, and the truth of the work itself. And so you practice in this way, dedicating yourself to what you know to be true, to be present, whether it's in love, in relationship, in relationship to the earth. And here you are, you sit down, you mind your own business, right? You're just trying to be aware for a moment. It takes a lot of patience and compassion because the mind is the untrained puppy. The body has all its tensions. You sit and trying to be quiet and your shoulders get tight and your jaw hurts and your back. You know why that happens? Because you've been running around so much and each time there's conflict, it gets stored in the body and you sit quietly and the body says, hey, remember me? And you feel it all. Or as someone said, you get sleepy. In one monastery, it's called the poor man's nirvana. Right? You don't want to fight against it. It's the reason you know why you're sleepy? Because you're tired. You know, and finally you get to sit still and things come back to balance if you keep tending. Or your mind. You know, Wes talked about it last night. There's a cartoon car driving across the landscape of Utah with a vast kind of horizon and a billboard sign at the side of the road that says, your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles, right? <laughs> it's kind of a description of meditation. So you sit here and it just does things, right? And what do you do? Your loneliness comes. Don't, don't deny your loneliness. It's, you know, usually we get bored or lonely or 
frightened and what do we do? We open the refrigerator or call somebody or text somebody, anything, but be with ourselves. But the problem is then you can never really be with yourself. So here you just let it be. And even if it's physically painful, this is Darlene Cohen, a Zen teacher who died recently. She writes, and, and she, uh, I'll say one more thing about her. She suffered, suffered's the right word, from crippling rheumatoid arthritis for most of her adult life and worked with an enormous amount of physical pain and wrote about it as her path. People sometimes ask me where my own healing energy comes from, how in the midst of this pain, this implacable, slow crippling, can I encourage myself and other people? My answer is that my healing comes from my bitterness itself, my despair, my terror. It comes from the shadow. I dip down into that muck again and again, and then I'm flooded with its healing energy. Despite the renewal and vitality it gives me to face my deepest fears, I don't go willingly when they call. I've been around the wheel a million times. First I feel the despair, but I deny it for a few days. Then its tugs become more insistent in proportion to my resistance. Finally, it overwhelms me and pulls me down, kicking and screaming all the way. It's clear I'm caught. So at last, I give up to this reunion with the dark aspects of my adjustment to pain and loss. Immediately, the release begins. First, peace with what is, and then the flood of vitality and healing energy. I can never just give up to it when I first feel it stir. You'd think after a million times with a good ending, I could give up right away and say, take me, I'm yours. But I never do. I always resist. I guess that's why it's called despair. If you went willingly, it would be called something else like purification or renewal or something more hopeful. But it's staring defeat and annihilation in the face that's so terrifying. I resist it until it overwhelms me but also I've come to trust it deeply. It's enriched my life, informed my work, and taught me not to fear to go into anything. So sometimes you sit in the body aches. And again, the point isn't to sit you know, and make pain. You want to sit relatively comfortably, but sometimes it does. And you sit with it, because otherwise you'll spend your whole life running away because you're afraid of it. And you don't have to be with the nobility and presence of Buddha nature, joy and sorrow and pleasure and pain, all are received in the space of awareness. And you begin to trust the space of mindfulness itself. When I was in Burma a couple of, couple of years ago, Aung San Suu Kyi was still under house arrest almost 17 years. No one would talk about her. It was too dangerous. We went in this whole group of people, activists, bringing money for schools and clinics. When we were told from the beginning, do not mention her name, do not say anything political, because you will put the people that we meet and work with in jeopardy of being imprisoned and tortured. 
But one day I was riding a taxi in Rangoon, and I saw that on the visor of the taxi in the inside was an Obama bumper sticker, Obama 08. And I thought, maybe this guy's cool. We'll see, you know. So I started to talk to him a little about Obama, Obama, which was a big thing in the world at that point. And then about, I said, now let me ask you something. I've been here for weeks, and I haven't heard a single person utter the name of Aung San Suu Kyi. Has she been forgotten? And his eyes got really wide and frightened when I said her name. Like, you had to make sure the car wasn't bugged, someone wasn't there. I said, it's okay. I really respect her. And then he, he turned, it was a stoplight, and he said, never, put his hand across his mouth, never say her name. Never hear, put his hand on his heart, but always hear. And here's this little woman who's just my age, 65, 66, you know, who could leave Burma at any time, but if she did, they'd never let her back in. She couldn't go to be with her husband when he died of cancer or her kids graduated college. And she stays there and she says to the generals, I will not go. I will not go and I will not hate you. But I'm here and I represent the, she was elected as the leader of Burma. I'm here, I represent the people of Burma. I will not leave and I will not hate you. And for all those years, it's as if her light, the seed that she carries, resonates with, illuminates the hearts of 50 million people who are oppressed and suffering in Burma. The seeds we carry are really beautiful, good seeds. And you can trust them. You can trust them, plant them, tend them. Allow them to open, O nobly born. Now the idea in practice is not to get too idealistic about it, not to make the perfect house and garden kind of garden. It doesn't happen. Did you notice today in your meditation? You might have some ideas of how it's supposed to be. Like this mother who was taking her child to kindergarten. She's a doctor going off to her medical practice. She had her physician's bag there and five-year-old daughter in a car seat in the front. And her daughter took out the stethoscope to play with it, put it in her ears and was playing with it. And mom was driving along thinking, oh, you know how cute she's playing doctor. Maybe when she grows up, she'll go to medical school too. She'll be a family physician like me. And all those, you know, kind of parental thoughts that we have at times. And then the daughter took the listening end of the stethoscope up to her mouth and said, welcome to McDonald's. May I take your order, please? <laughs> you know. I mean, we have so many ideas about how it's supposed to be. When I read Shambhala's son or Tricycle, I wonder who these people are. They admit to occasional thoughts, but it seems like they're all getting enlightened, or at least able to dwell in open space constantly. Or those yoga journal people, where everyone is thin, composed, and bends in all directions. <laughs> or Fortune, where everyone's a millionaire, a captain of success. 
So where, I ask, is the magazine for failure? <laughs> for 30 years of falling and only later recalling, oh yes, be here now. For the continual recovering from the storm, the endless repairing of broken sails. For this thick and heavy middle-aged body barely bending. For the immense gratitude in meeting once again next week's payroll, next month's rent. And so the point isn't to make some notion of perfection and get really idealistic about how it's supposed to be. It is the way it is. Your body is the way your body is. The heart is the way the heart is. The tears come because you've been so busy you haven't had time to feel the longing or the grief that you carry, you know, or the love that hasn't been expressed. The thoughts, the river of thoughts, the mind secretes thoughts like the salivary gland secretes saliva. It's just what it does. And the point isn't to stop it, but to know what is so now, and then not to be so lost in it. Oh, this is just the mind doing its thing. Not to be idealistic, and not in some way to try and make something happen, but to rest in the present and say, here's the breath. The breath just helps you to get a little bit present. Here's the arising of feelings, or thoughts, sensations. And as we will teach you, as we open the field of mindfulness, you can name them gently. You can, as if to bow to them, you can acknowledge them. Oh, here's sadness, sad, sad. And this is happiness. Oh, happy, happy. Here's fear, fear, fear. Uh-oh, you know, I hate fear. Okay, hating, hating. It's going to get worse. I know it is. Oh, terror, terror. What am I going to do? I'm going to die. Dying, dying. Okay, let me see what that's like. Dying, dying. Right? I did that really well. Oh, pride, pride. Look at that, you know. Then the next breath. And you start to f sit like the Buddha and just say, yes, this is what the mind does. This is what the heart does. And those of you who've practiced for a long time, you know this. It's not about the breath or the steps. It's about the quality of presence and compassion and freedom that you bring here and now. And the retreats are really a renewal of this, a returning to this. I wouldn't coax the plant if I were you. Such watchful nurturing may do it harm. Let the soil rest from too much digging and wait until it's dry before you water it. The leaf's inclined to find its own direction. Give it a chance to seek sunlight for itself. Much growth is stunted by too careful prodding, too eager tenderness. The things we love, we also have to learn to leave alone. So it's not like fiddling with your meditation and trying to make something happen, but again and again coming to rest in the reality of the present, in the space of awareness that feels the breath, or says, what is now? Busyness of mind, quiet mind, open heart, closed heart. One thing isn't better than another. What matters is the presence that you bring to it. This selection that I just read, by the way, comes from a book called If the Buddha Dated. Dated, right? Flirting, the Buddha's instructions on how to flirt, basically. You can tell we're in a different era. 
And as you sit, you start to see the different stories that the mind tells. The stories of fear and anxiety. Remember what Mark Twain said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened, right? You get all those stories. The kinds of judgment. Some of us are so judgmental, they wouldn't put us on the bench in a civilized country. The kind of grief we carry, all the identity, this happened to me, and you did have trauma, you know, like I did. Many of us had really painful families, and so forth. But it does not define you. It needs to be felt and touched with compassion, healed at times, but the healing is just your attention to it. But it's not who you are. It's like that Pfeiffer cartoon. There's this man sitting there somewhat kind of looking a little bit unhappy, and he says, I inherited my father's perspectives on life and way of thinking. I inherited my father's style of dress and movement. I inherited my father's attitudes and you know, ways of moving through the world. And I inherited my mother's contempt for my father. Right? So it's sort of all in like one little cartoon strip. You know, and we all, you have your history, you have your painful history. We all do some measure of it. But the point is that that's not who you are. And awareness itself invites you into this garden of presence that can say, all right, there's weeds, there's, you know, there's these things that aren't really so healthy as seeds to plants. So you don't have to believe that and keep planting it over. You see it, thank you for your opinion. I, you know, I know you come like locusts or whatever. You come periodically. But that's not where you go. You say, ah, here we are. You meet it with compassion. You feel a breath. You feel a step. You let yourself rest in well-being. And one of the things that happens as you sit and let yourself tend the breath, the body, all that arises with this kind attention let yourself acknowledge the joys and sorrows, the anger, the love, all that you carry, is somehow you become bigger. You're not that small, frightened sense of self so much. And it doesn't change you alone, but actually it changes the world around you. It changes your relation to the world. James Baldwin writes, I imagine one of the reasons that people cling to their hate and prejudice so stubbornly as they sense that once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with their own pain. And so if we can't bear our own life, our fears, the insecurity that's a part of incarnation, it's not, we're vulnerable, we are insecure. If we can't find the wisdom of insecurity, then we blame somebody else, the Muslims, the communists, the, the immigrants, the gays, you know how this happens when we can't bear our own humanity, we make the most suffering for others because we project our fears on some other person or some other group. And so there's, a, there's both a dignity and there's a kind of radical courage to sit with your life, with its beauty and its pain, and say, yes, this is 
This is the experience of incarnation. And to sit as the Buddha and know what arises and tend it, apamada, with presence and care. Now as you do, the mind will come in and tell you all kinds of stories and analyze how you're doing. You're doing right, you're not doing right, you should do this, you should, shouldn't do that, and so forth, and how meditation should go or how your life should go. You know how it tells stories. Don't put too much stock in the stories. A lot of them, dare I say almost all of them, are half-truths at best. Especially the descriptions we have of ourselves. I mean, who do you think you are? You know, who you think you are is not who you are. Who you really are. This knowing, this awareness that's timeless. And then we get in what's called the small sense of self, the body of fear. So one woman left a retreat here some time back um, and went down to Palm Springs Airport to fly home after 10 days. She was pretty quiet, went through the airport nicely, and went into the little airport shop and got a bag of some cookies to take on the plane, and then sat down in the boarding area. And there were those several seats, and then a little table, and then another row of seats next. Um, and as she sat, a guy sat down on the other side of that little table. And after a little while, he opened the bag of cookies. And she kind of looked at him, like, wow. And he saw her look at him, and so he opened it, and he opened it, and he, like, you know, do you want one? So, okay, this guy's kind of a little out there, but she took a cookie, and then he took one, and he ate it, and one another, and there were like six or eight cookies in there, and he gradually got down to the last cookie. You want this? So, okay. I thought that was really, really weird, right? Then she got on the plane, called her, you know, plane, they boarded, she got in her seat, put things overhead, put her bag underneath the seat, and opened her bag as she did, and there was her bag of cookies, right? You know? She had this whole idea of what was happening. That's how your mind works, you know? It's them. They did it to you. You know that. I mean, I'm telling you that. So what do you do? Humble, embarrassed. Zen Master Ryokan said, um, spring morning I hang my bowl beside the Buddha shrine to play with the children. Last year a foolish monk. This year no change. Great, he's one of the favorite of Japanese poets. Again, the point isn't to perfect your personality, but it really is to perfect your love. So Sharon Salzberg, who was practicing metta, loving kindness practice in Burma with this Sayadaw, um, said she was doing an intensive retreat of just metta practice all day long. And she said, I kept planting the seeds of loving kindness. May I be well, may I be safe, may I be happy, and so forth, starting with herself. She said, and it felt very dry and mechanical, which it can sometimes. Sometimes it brings up its opposite, and you feel, you know, the anger and all of that. She said, it just felt so dry and mechanical, and, and my teacher just said, keep doing it. Just keep planting the seeds over and over and see what happens. And on and on, not much happened, day after day. After quite a number of days, 
she sees herself as not particularly graceful. And in her room, one day she had her lunch plate and teacup, and she kind of tripped, and the whole thing fell on the floor, and the plate shattered in the cup. And she could hear her mind go, you, you klutz, you know, kind of very judgmental. You klutz, I love you. <laughs> I said, oh, it works, you know. <laughs> Took a while, but it works, it works. You plant the seeds, and as you plant the seeds, as you tend with care the possibility of being present with love and openness, this which is who you are unfolds and it opens. And it's quite trustworthy. The poet Pablo Neruda writes, you can pick all the flowers, but you can't stop the spring. You know, and you do it over and over again, not in order so much to get something, but just to trust that this moment where we are in the present, by bringing a, a care or attention, something beautiful will unfold from this. A man wrote to the IRS recently, I haven't been able to sleep knowing that I cheated on my taxes in 2009. Since I failed to fully disclose my earnings on my return, I've enclosed a cashier's check for $2,000. If I still can't sleep, I'll send the rest. <laughs> I mean, this is how it works. You plant seeds a little by little, and things open, and you say you do a little forgiveness practice, I sort of forgive you, maybe, a little bit, you know, and then the next time you do a little bit more, and a little bit more. And you begin to trust that coming back to where you always are, the reality of the present, again and again, you begin to inhabit the space of awareness, and the, the sense of your freedom grows as a new practitioner or as an experienced practitioner. When you come back after some years of practice, yes, you can deepen, you can learn new things, and it's a beautiful thing in retreat. But more than anything, it's kind of a refreshment. It's come back to something that you know is healing and awakening and, and uh, really beautiful for the body and heart, purifying. And it's so mysterious. You know, we're connected in such deep and mysterious ways. The Dhammapada, the verse from the Buddha, when a traveler, a traveler at last comes home from a far journey, with what gladness their family and friends receive them, even so shall your good deeds, the seeds that you plant, welcome you like friends. And with what rejoicing, here and now, and in any time, in every time. So you begin to trust, and you tend the seeds in a beautiful way. Kathy Sneed, quite amazing woman, um, she started the Prison Garden Project in the San Francisco County Prison, which used to have a big prison farm in the old days, but all that was moribund. And she went in and she saw all these people in our, our insane prison system where we have millions of people locked up um, behind bars for years and years. And, and they're, basically you get born in the wrong neighborhood or you're the wrong skin color and you know, you're likely headed to prison. These racist poverty prisons and it's, 
It's a great tragedy. So she said, I have to do something. And so she started, got volunteers and started this prison project and got seeds and, prison, uh, and got garden tools and so forth. And after a year, some of the most kind of hardened and tough guys in there, that all their focus was my row, my plot in the garden, don't step on my babies, you know, these big tattooed guys who would, you know, look like really scary and been in all kinds of fights and things like that. Take care of my babies, I've got to go back. They, they so loved their garden because it was something that they could care for, something that needed them, that gave them a, a, a reason and a dignity and a, and, and a place to care for something outside them. That when they got out, they'd commit certain crimes again just to go back in and take care of their garden. You know, they want to go back in. Then she needed to start the, the garden project outside too, which she did, you know, so to kind of stop that cycle. So you dedicate yourself to come back here and now to the awareness of the present from how it's supposed to be or how it was and so forth as you sit, as you walk. There's a woman at a retreat at IMS in the East Coast Center when I was teaching who complained about the walking meditation. She liked sitting. Sitting, she got sort of quiet after a while. Walking was just never worked for her. She said, I just can't do it. I get restless. I get frustrated and can't do it. And so I said, well, walk slower, walk faster. Didn't work. Close your eyes, take a few steps, try in the desert. Take a few steps with your eyes closed, just to feel from the inside, then open them, right? Not a long way, you know? Helped a tiny bit, I still hate it. Can't walk, hate it, you know? So I gave her different things to try, didn't work. I said, all right, there's one more thing you can do. Don't sit, walk for a whole day, you'll learn how to walk. She bargained. How about half a day? Okay, so we did. Then she left me this note. Dear Jack, long walking meditation, all morning, assignment completed, thank you. Now I can meditate while moving. I thought I might discover why I've been so resistant, but circumstances taught me much more. I chose to walk in the annex walking room because it's small, beautiful, and usually quiet. Today, however, it was noisy as hell. There was some guy in there walking like the little engine that could, wearing noisy boots. Well, thought I, surely he'll be gone when the walking period ends. No such luck. This madman pounded his way through an hour and a half nonstop except when he paused to drink or remove a noisy layer of clothing. I tried metta. Surely he must have a lot of pain to be so driven. Then I realized that I wanted to kill the SOB. <laughs> I stood there and noting, hating, hating, hating. <laughs> then I just stood in the middle of the room and cried, the ocean of tears. Finally, I got to the point where I realized whatever problem he had was his, not mine. And after that, I got quiet and he was just sound. And so I walked and breathed and he paced and pounded and pretty soon it was all the same to me, his noise, my breath, the movement of my body, and after an hour and a half, he left. And then it was incredibly quiet, which was different, but not as much better as I would have expected, mostly just different. Thank you, I think I've learned something from this walking. 
You can see 90-year-old widows committed to tending small flowers in their window boxes. And 10-year-olds with very little to eat care for stray kittens holding them to their scrawny chests. And painters going blind who paint more. And composers going deaf who write great symphonies. You know, this life is given to you. And what's asked is your tending, your apamada, your care, your presence for this very life, this very moment. Thoreau puts it this way, though I do not believe that a plant will spring up where no seed has been, I have great faith in a seed. Convince me you have a seed there, and I am prepared to expect wonders. So you plant, as the Buddha said in the Plowing Sutra, you, you plant the seeds of trust and faith, compassion, let the rain of your kindness come on your practice. Come back again and again to rest in awareness, to know the breath, to hear the sounds of the trucks and the motorcycles go by, playing through the space of awareness. The conditions in this temple are exactly what you need for enlightenment. They're perfect. They are the conditions of your life are perfect for awakening. They're exactly what you need. You have the sights and sounds. You have the physical experiences of pleasure and pain. You have all the emotions of joy and sorrow. And you have this heart to know and see clearly. You have the great heart of a Buddha within you. And just as the Buddha sat under his tree of enlightenment, you take your seat here, halfway between heaven and earth in this human form under your tree of enlightenment. And the joys and sorrows present themselves in this great mystery. And you begin to surrender and feel the vastness of it and your connection with it all, the openness of it. There was a story in the newspaper a few years ago about an elephant sanctuary in, I believe it's in Tennessee, a woman who had a great affection for elephants and wanted to make sure that the elephants that were old and might have been cast out or even killed after they were used in circuses or from zoos would have a place to retire, so to speak. Um, so she bought these hundreds of acres, and now it's grown, actually and invited people from around the country to send her elephants. She went to Africa and learned about elephant tending. And after a few years, she had a herd of a dozen, 15 elephants. And then an elephant was sent to her from the Baton Rouge Zoo, an old elephant named Shirley, 25, 26 years old, something like that. Sent by, I don't know, truck or train or whatever, got to the elephant sanctuary. And before they released the elephants into the herd, they put them in a holding pen next to the herd. Um, so there are bars there, but the other elephants can come up and stick their trunks in and <laughs> sniff them and kind of touch them and get to know who's come and so forth. But one elephant in the herd came up to it and started 
trumpeting and pounding on the bars and, oh, you know, and making this huge fuss. And Shirley got all upset and was pounding on the bars. And the, the woman who started the sanctuary got really upset, like, what's wrong and what's, you know, and tried to figure it out and couldn't and called back to Baton Rouge to the zoo. And with some investigation, discovered that Shirley and this other elephant had actually been in the circus together before Shirley went to the zoo 23 years before. And they hadn't seen each other for 23 years. And they were just excited, you know? <laughs> and when she found this out and opened the pen, then they walked around with their trunks together like this, you know, for, for the first months, just like old sisters that needed to reunite themselves. The seeds that are beautiful that we plant will bear fruit. They're not forgotten. They become part of who we are in the most beautiful way. We are, as Martin Luther King said, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality held in a single garment of destiny. And we are woven with this world. And you get to tend it. You get to live in it with the magnificence and beauty and dignity of your own Buddha nature that no one can take from you. I guess I end so many stories with a poem from Diane Ackerman that's a little bit like a modern bodhisattva vow. She calls it school prayer. Um, and the poets, a whole circle of well-known poets, were asked if there was going to be prayer in the school, what would you want to see the kids, you know, praying? This was her response. She writes, in the, in the name of daybreak and the eyelids of morning and the wayfaring moon and the night when it departs, I swear I will not dishonor my soul with hatred, but offer myself humbly as a guardian of nature, as a healer of misery, as a messenger of wonder, and an architect of peace. And so sometimes when you sit here, it feels like it's just your knee hurts, or your attention is wandering, or you're rerunning some conflict from the past, some difficult conversation, and boredom and doubt comes, what am I doing? What you're doing is a beautiful thing and a magnificent one. You're really coming back to center yourself in your own part of a Buddha, to rest in awareness and freedom, to know that this is your nature and to trust it. And whether you're new on the retreat, it takes a few days, even if you've been coming for years, it still takes a few days. It just takes its own time. But you can trust it. Gradually things will open and flower. And by the end of the retreat, people look different. We look out at you and your faces look different. We call it the Vipassana facelift, right? We sell it in Hollywood in LA or something like that. People look younger and brighter and more beautiful through all that you've sat and walked through and been with. And um, it's a really worthy thing to do. So um, I'm grateful we're here in this desert that we get to share this time and this retreat. Again, for me, 35 years, this desert is one of my homes. 
Um, and I thank you for listening. Let's sit just for a moment. So now you get to enjoy a half an hour of walking meditation in the desert night, or not enjoy it, but do it anyway, whatever, and then we'll come back and sit. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.